Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about 40, got about 700 bucks a month. And so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's what Keegan says. He says, I think you're a great dude investing in an important cause, and I want you to be successful. Thank you, Keegan. And today, I interview Ryan from Foam, and my highest level takeaway is that Foam is impressive. Um, they've been working on it for a while, and every time that I'd ask questions, it would feel like, oh, I kind of understand that, but wait, there's more unboxing to be had underneath it. Um, so for example, when we talked about proof of location, it was like, oh, we're talking about that, but there's actually static versus dynamic proof of location. And it feels honestly like sometimes when I talk to my friends about crypto or I say, hey, they say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I do like cryptocurrency stuff. And there's just this endless rabbit hole of questions. Um, that's kind of how it felt with Ryan in a good way though. Um, so we talk about, um, um, various things with Ryan today. Um, and primarily, we just kind of go over their protocol, the three main things that they have, which is this crypto spatial coordinate system, which is kind of like a latitude and longitude standard for the blockchain. We talk about the UX that they're putting on top of it. And then we talk about um, kind of proving your location through the blockchain, um, especially the static version of proof of location where that uses uh, token curated registries or TCRs. Um, so we essentially go over all those things and kind of dive into the protocol. And for me, kind of three big interesting things um, are on my mind after I re-listen to it. The first is it feels like uh, there's this new crypto economic primitive that's being made um, where so if you think about it like this so Bitcoin is and I'm not really sure how to explain this but um, Bitcoin mining um, is just you get the mining rewards just purely with respect to time um, so just it's a one dimensional kind of reward function where you say what is the time okay it was this time therefore you get this amount of Bitcoins um, but now we're seeing these so someone like Foam does these rewards over both time but also XY space and the way that they do that is pretty much if you want um, let's say you want location services in a place well then you signal to show that you want them in a given location let's say Times square and then if someone creates a location anchor there um then they receive more of these block rewards um in a location that has more signaling so this is to say if you put a um a, one of these anchor nodes in a place that has lots of signaling like Times square you'll get more block rewards than if you put it in another place like uh randomly middle of nowhere in wyoming um and so that that essentially changes the block rewards from a pure one-dimensional time function like Bitcoin to a kind of three-dimensional X, Y, and time function um, in, in Foam. And it reminds me of uh, my interview recently with Trent McConaughey in Ocean Protocol, where they use these curation markets for staking for data, um, where essentially the rewards are given based off of how folks are kind of staking to that data. Um, and again, it's another thing where you're like you're sticking to the data and you're essentially saying, hey, when people get rewards from it, those rewards are based off of the stake. So I don't know. I think that there's some kind of crypto economic primitive at this intersection of creation market style staking um, and these new versions of multidimensional space, not just 1D like Bitcoin, but rather um, N-dimensional, whether it's XY space like foam or kind of uh, in the data space with ocean. So that's one kind of interesting takeaway. The second is... Um, 
So in this podcast, I essentially learn about Tendermint and Plasma, which are these scaling solutions that I know nothing about or very little about, um, and how Foam is kind of creating something very similar to them. Um, and the idea is that Foam, you essentially, if you want to open up, there's essentially these levels of synchronicity um, in their system where you say, um, you know, if I open up this zone anchor, which are these like little places in XY space, um, and I then I want, I essentially get a signal. Um, when I signal uh, to that zone anchor, I send a radio signal to it. That zone anchor then puts that in a log in kind of the semi-synchronous fashion, and eventually that semi-synchronous log is put asynchronously um, back to the main blockchain like Ethereum. And so the interesting thing with this is that, and that that anchor node, by the way, the one that was sending the things back to Ethereum, they, um, when they got started up, they had to stake to the main blockchain to say, hey, I will be a good node and I will participate in this network accordingly. And that's pretty similar to some of these like plasma and tendermint style things where you are essentially creating a uh, semi-synchronous system that stakes to, or a semi-synchronous like node that essentially stakes to the main chain. Um, so I'm excited to see how stuff like foam and plasma and tendermint kind of overlap and create standards around um, synchronous, semi-synchronous, and um, asynchronous kind of staking to the main chain as ways to scale. So that was kind of um, another thing that we talked about that I was interested by. And the third is this idea of an objective TCR. Um, so Foam really kind of pushes back and says, hey, um, when we're going to make this token curated registry, this TCR, we want to make sure that ours is objective. And this is um, and, and, and this is kind of in response to this guy Alex from CoinFund who's pushed back against TCRs and he says, hey, a TCR, which is a decentralized way to make a list, is really just an oracle. Um, it just gives you, you say, hey, is this thing on the list? And you say like, yes or no. Um, and that's similar to an oracle that says, hey, what was the answer to this question or whatever? What was the magnitude of this thing? Um, and so when you think about it, so essentially you can imagine a TCR as a one-dimensional version of an oracle, which is kind of just a zero-dimensional or like just a point in space. Um, and so, but when he's Alex from CoinFunny says, hey, if you want to make a TCR, first, an objective answer needs to exist. Um, B, it needs to be publicly observable. And C, it must be really cheap to observe it. And so we're going to kind of see, I bet, a bunch of these new TCRs that instead of just being purely uh, like, uh, like any kind of random list, instead, we're going to see more TCRs like Foams that have actual objective data that is easy to check. Um, and Foam does it because uh, they essentially do it with point of interest data where you say, hey, Statue of Liberty is here. And that's like a very easy thing to check against and a pretty objective thing. So this is all say, it was a fascinating episode, um, and we go kind of relatively deep on a bunch of various crypto economic subjects, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Thanks, and bye. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world, and we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're focusing on Series C, Software Systems, where we ask the question, what structures are we making in code? And for today's episode, I'm very happy to introduce Ryan John King to the show. Ryan is a co-founder and CEO of Frome, a protocol for proof of location. Ryan, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Yeah, Reese, thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, talk more about Foam and the protocols and standards we're building. Yeah, I'm excited. And uh, as a note, we're doing this live, so Ryan, can we can see each other face-to-face in the flesh. Um, and so let's start at the high level and say, what is Foam? 
Yeah, um, so Foam is a project uh, primarily right now on the Ethereum uh, ecosystem where we're trying to bring um, location standards and spatial protocols to blockchain technology. Uh, so currently there is no way to think or reason about a location in a way that's standardized. Uh, <clears throat> further, there is no real robust user experience tools, as we know, across the field in applications, but specifically when it comes to adding in map or geospatial data to adapt, there's no real way to help visualize that. Uh, and third, then, there's no way if blockchain is going to be bleeding into the real world uh, to verify events in the real world autonomously or trustlessly. Uh, so Foam has three different elements to its project. Uh, the crypto-spatial coordinate for encoding location standards in the smart contract. Mm -hmm. uh, spatial index visualizer. That's a full-stack general-purpose web app, kind of like a Bloomberg terminal mixed with a Google Maps. So you, it's a visual blockchain explorer. And the third component is proof of location, a, a protocol from saying, hey, are these smart contracts with location showing up on the map actually there? Okay. So yeah, there's three components. There's the crypto-spatial coordinates which is the, the and let's, we'll dive into each of them in a second, but that's the standard for saying, here's how you say, here's how you say where your location is on the blockchain. Yeah, how, yeah. how a smart contract can inherit this location standard and then they can customize where they claim to be. Yep, got it. So kind of like something like how if you want to say, hey, I want to be a token, you be an ERC-20. If you say, hey, I want to be a location, you use this cryptospatial coordinate standard. Uh, pretty much exactly. Yeah, um, it's something free to inherit. And if everyone uses the same standard, then you can start to index the contract spatially and then visualize them in the other elements. Got it, yeah, and that's part two, which is once you have everybody using the standard, the CSC, or the crypt, yeah, the cryptospatial coordinates, then you can uh, say, okay, now all of these things have the standard, you can start to visualize them instead of looking at blocks with respect to time, you can look at blocks with respect to XY space. Yeah, kind of? exactly, yeah. Uh, and it's completely, these components are free and open source and for anyone to inherit or build on. Uh, so you can, you know, say, let's see every smart contract with a spatial address, or you know you can then start to build in filters. So if you're only, only building a supply chain application or you're only building uh, a Pokemon Go or an NFT game, mm -hmm. you know, those can still inherit these properties and you can still use the visualizer, but you can also, you know, siphon off all the other noise and just use these tools for your application. Yeah, got it. Okay. And then the third piece is once everybody's using these standards and once you and people are starting to use them and explore with them in these various ways, then you can actually start to prove your location um, at a given point in space-time, kind of, and say, hey, or especially space, um, I guess time is already done by the blockchain, and then once you've proven your location, that can be useful for various apps going forward, for various apps. Uh, yeah, so we see proof of location as really like a whole horizontal infrastructure that will be you know, a critical piece of infrastructure that many different applications or verticals can hook into. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets a little bit more granular in that we have two... Um, portions of proof of location. Uh, the first one is called static proof of location. So how do we come to consensus on things that don't move? Okay. Uh, and this is a, what I mean by that is like a geographic point of interest, let's okay. say city hall or um, this piece of real estate. And if any of those were being represented on the blockchain, they can claim a location uh, and we can come to social consensus on, you know, are these things actually there? Uh, and that's where we're using token created registries okay. for really kind of to come to a social consensus, a kind of weaker proof of location on okay, someone made a smart contract with a location, can we all kind of try to come to consensus on this static point? Mm -hmm. um, dynamic proof of location is now through space and time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an entity moving around the city in, mm -hmm. in different places, and it wants to claim its location at different points throughout the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, where um, really Foam is about a time synchronization protocol. And this is really the almost fourth component because we're launching with the first three elements. Mm -hmm. And this future dynamic proof of location is really 
kind of the most ambitious part of the project and the way to really uh, come to consensus on moving points in a fraud-proof way. Okay, cool. Um, yes, there's the static and dynamic, and the static will be used with the TCR, and that's like for all T, for all periods of time. City Hall is here, and eventually it might change every like 50 or 200 or 500 years or whatever, but generally it's staying there versus dynamic, which is like your Uber car driving around. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so we'll come back to that in a sec, but let's go back to the very top one there with the cryptospatial coordinates. And... I know, I was reading some of the stuff on the website around, there's these really cool things on the internet where you're like, hey, so latitude and longitude are ways to know where you are in time, or sorry, where you are in space. And there's also these cool, like the three word thing that says yeah, like- What three words? What, what was it called? What three words? What three words, and you say like apple, banana, microphone, and then you know, oh, that's this little small square on yeah. Earth. Tell me about this new standard that you're building and why it's needed as compared to these other latitude, yeah. longitude. So latitude, longitude is great and we're not getting rid of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The idea is that, um, and it's the most known, but if you want to go down to something like a three by three meter grid, um, the actual number of that latitude and longitude string uh, will be extremely long. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not human readable, it's not memorable. And even when it comes to implementing it into the EVM, the EVM has no float point and there's no way to standardize like mm -hmm. how everyone's contract is actually at a different length of latitude, longitude, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, just in general, people think location is a solved problem because we have postal addresses and yep. GPS works so great telling us how to get places, but billions of people don't have postal addresses. Yep. So location is a problem for them. And there's billions of more parcels of land in the middle of a desert or somewhere that also have no precise location. Yeah. Uh, so this is an unsolved problem. And you know, one way to solve it is something called a geohash. Mm -hmm. It's an open source standard someone proposed in 2009. And it's not the same cryptographic hash function, but it's like a space-filling geometric curve. And that's a way to really crunch down a latitude and longitude. Okay. And that's great. And it's something that cryptospatial coordinate uses. The problem is that geohash is an open standard and free. And as we know, prior to blockchain, uh, and new funding mechanisms, open free standards really didn't go anywhere. So this has just been in the public domain for almost 10 years. Uh, well, what three words tries to solve the problem as well, although where they assign three funky words to any mm -hmm. three by three, although it's a proprietary centralized solution. So they're licensing this to Mercedes-Benz, train corporations, mm -hmm. and they want to solve this world problem. But if they do, they also have world dominance as yeah. a central <laughs> licensed service. Yeah. So when it comes to encoding uh, location on the blockchain, uh, latitude and longitude has technical issues, plus it's not very well to represent. Yeah. And on what three words is a centralized licensing service. Yep. So what we did is taking this open source solution, the Geohash, yep. and simply um, connect that to a smart contract. So okay. we allow any Ethereum address to make an immutable claim to any Geohash they want. Okay. And out of that, a deterministic uh, CSC identifier mm -hmm. comes out of that. Okay. So the CSC ultimately is derived from a blockchain address, making a claim to a geohash, and that yeah. geohash ultimately comes from a latitude and longitude. Okay. But it's uh, a problem of location encoding. Mm -hmm. So it's like actually how do we encode this information in a standard way. Mm -hmm. So the CSC is then a unique eight digit uh, identifier tag okay. that's then an immutable way and it's verifiable on and off chain mm -hmm. because um, as part of the proof of location game, I could go to that location and see if the smart contract's there, or I can also look at the blockchain and see what the location encoded in it as well. Got it. Okay, so when you have something, I guess at a high level, how the geohash thing, does it, um, like, how big are the squares, you know? Uh, yeah, so you, we, it's arbitrarily okay. small, but we've, in our system, set it at a limit of one square meter. Okay, got it. And, but it's um, hierarchical as well, so like let's say Brooklyn, 
or the, we're sitting here at the in the Navy Yard in mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Yep. The CSC of the new lab would be derivable uh, that it's in Brooklyn, cool. and the printer in the corner here may have a unique address as well. Yeah. Um, so it can, doesn't have to be one square meter; it can be larger. Yeah. Um, but a geohash can go down to any arbitrary. Okay. Cool. Precision. So, and then this geohash thing, and then you're essentially taking it, and you are, and, and the, you're essentially creating a the new eight eight character um, representation of the geohash. Um, and putting it on the blockchain and saying, hey, and this is what everybody else will use as, this is what you hope everybody will use as a standard. Yeah, yeah. so if you knew the CSC, you mm-hmm. could go to the, our visualizer and type it in, mm-hmm. and it would show you that smart contract. So okay. it's a hmm. tool then also for the block explorer. Got it, okay. So I think that makes sense. Um, and it's an open, free standard. We yep. uh, are working with organizations like the OGC, Open Geospatial Consortium. Okay. They set standards worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting a distributed ledger technology working group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something uh, definitely could be improved on. We're open to suggestions, but the idea is just to have an open shared standard yep. to encode location. Yep. In the end, you don't really care what standard it is. You just yeah. want a standard. You think your standard is pretty good and yeah. maybe it has issues. And if there are issues, let them know. You yeah. know? <laughs> okay. Because, yeah, just not to, we can move on, but we'd look mm-hmm. at projects like supply chain and uh, a drone project mm-hmm. uh, in the blockchain Ethereum space and one has latitude longitude, the other has a street address mm-hmm. and now you have interoperable contracts that yeah. can't speak to each other about the space. So yeah. that's when we really noticed there was room to introduce a standard. Okay. And it's about bringing location to blockchain, not blockchain to location. Oh. Hmm. Well, um, ultimately me, yeah. uh, one would surpass the other, but okay. Okay. I mean, right now just in blockchain there is no location standard. Yeah. So first we'll bring them there, but eventually blockchain as it eats the world yes. becomes the standard. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense. That's what you mean by we're bringing location to blockchain um, and then eventually, and then now the blockchain will have the location standard and then eventually blockchain will be pushed onto location, i.e. all of the locations will be blockchainified to some extent. Yeah, or okay. the verticals that take up locations like Uber or a supply chain or an yeah. IoT device. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so that's the, the crypto spatial coordinate standard. And then from that, there's this um, this block explorer, but really it's a geospatial explorer or yeah. whatever. So tell me more about that. How does it use the, the crypto spatial standard? Yeah. yeah, so the spatial index visualizer, it's a full stack uh, web app uh, mm-hmm. for Ethereum. Uh, it's a React app. Okay. And really all the way on the front end, it's based on um, it's a WebGL, a Mapbox GL, as well as this tool called DeckGL, which is made by Uber's visualization team, okay. which is a really awesome uh, big data visualizer. Uh, and we've also, because it's a functional programming app, we've built a PureScript Web3 library. Um, PureScript is this functional front-end programming language that compiles to JavaScript. Uh, so we have a PureScript Web3 library, a PureScript Mapbox library, and a PureScript DeckGL library. We built all that. And so from this map in browser, you can deploy um, smart contracts spatially. Um, through MetaMask or Uport, uh, so that in the simple example, I want to deploy a CryptoKitty and give it a home. Mm-hmm. I can click on the map, uh, it'll tell me it's latitude longitude, it'll deploy it, assign it its CSC, it'll do whatever CryptoKitty call we had, but um, our backend API, we have a RESTful API written in Haskell and the Kubernetes clusters and whatever, so this is listening to the blockchain, indexing events, and once it, uh, your confirm event was confirmed, mm-hmm. uh, this API would feed back the front end and your CryptoKitty would appear on the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you can apply this to any application. And the idea is that in browser, as a user, um, you would see events happening in the browser in almost real time from other blockchain users. 
Good. So the front end can just like basically be fed from the API, everything happening. And it goes in this kind of loop yep. where I can deploy it to the map. And once it's confirmed in the back end, it just shows up on the map. Yep. And that's completely, um, you know, no token or economics involved. It's yep. a general purpose. So uh, developer, we have a developer portal and API so people could use this in their own applications. And yeah, I, I meant to say that the indexer and the API is listening for contracts with CSEs. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. And you could customize it to say only look for CSEs with this additional tag for a specific app, but this API and indexer is just listening to the blockchain for any uh, contract that inherits a CSC and then show, feeds it to the front end and renders it where it should be. Got it. Cool. So I have a little crypto kitty and I say, hey, I want this crypto kitty to live in my home. My home is a random latitude and longitude, which turns into a geohash, which turns into a CSC. Yeah. And then I say, hey, I'm going to put it on the blockchain connected to the CSC. Um, and then when I do that, then I put it there and then this web app that you're talking about, the a spatial index uh, explorer um, is listening on, on all the different transactions. Like, ooh, do any of these inherit CSC? It says, ah, this one inherited CSC. Great, I'm gonna show this on the explorer and now my CryptoKitty lives in my home uh, and, and, it, and it updates on all the, on anybody who's looking. Anyone um, who's looking at the viewer will then see a new point has been yeah, added cool. and they can then click and explore what cool. it is. Yeah. And yeah. It's also automated from the user side, so you just click where you want it to be on the map, and it assigns it all those geotagged features. Okay, cool. Okay, so I got that. Um, so now we have the ability to place things in uh, in space, and then they show up in this um, on with a UX on top of it, essentially. So then the final piece here is, I guess, getting to the the nitty gritty for why one. And when I think about a foam, I thought. The word that comes to the top of my mind always like is proof of location. I was like, okay, what, you know, tell me why, I guess, what, what is the need for proof of location? How does it relate to these first two concepts that we've talked about? Yeah, so it's definitely one of the later things that we developed, and it was born out of all the ideas we had about spatial blockchains and things in the real world. Uh, and it really just came down to most of the exciting ideas and applications we had, that if there was no way to prevent fraud and really come to consensus, uh, in a shared and distributed way on if entities are where they say they were, uh, none of these ideas are going to work. And you can see as the main example of um, Pokemon Go, which uh, was relying on GPS, that there was no money at stake, but people went out of their way to lie about their location and mm. unlock uh, Pokemon. So mm. you can imagine- How did they do that, by the way? Uh, so spoof, And so th this just highlights why the problem is so um, serious in that so gps is extremely accurate yeah. for finding out where you are mm -hmm. it's extremely trivial to lie about where you are to someone else mm. so there's a plethora of spoofer apps in the app store for even a developer they need mm -hmm. to test different locations for yeah. different things so for me to drop a pin that i'm in china is very yeah. trivial for me yeah. and so for me to run this script on my phone that uh, has me walking around the city all day collecting pokemon while i stay at my desk well Many of my friends did that. Yeah. Further, um, the Pokemon are generated based off OpenStreetMap data, mm -hmm. and so the users hacked the map and would add like volcanoes or rivers mm -hmm. or lakes to New York City to generate Pokemon mm -hmm. or Blastoise, mm -hmm. and all the applications like uh, Mapbox or Craigslist that use OpenStreetMaps, they actually got those ah, things that's rendered. Funny. It's like <laughs> and so this has no tokens, no value, and the Pokemon players were like hacking the map uh, as well as lying about their location on yeah. GPS. So. Yeah. You can imagine a scenario where there's an autonomous smart contract with yep. a location parameter, yep. and whether it's a video game or a high-stakes you know, supply chain handoff, yep. uh, if it will execute autonomously based on the location input, and if you can't verify the origin of that location input, yep. then it might as well not uh, be valid. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. So, and that's what I thought. I was like, 
how can you really hack something like GPS? But as you say, GPS, it's a really good for one way where you say, I want to know where I am. It says, here yeah. you are. And, but that's pretty different than just telling some other thing that wants your yeah. location, hey, this is where I am. And you just give it some so, random yeah, numbers. GPS is completely passive, so it's not interactive. So you can't generate any sort of certificate or proof that that's a real GPS message. Yeah. So when you share it with someone else, they don't know if you made that message up or you actually got it from a satellite at that time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like there's kind of two parts to this proof of location. They're both the same, but it's like one of them is like where I am in as an agent operating within the system. And then there's also like where the things are, like the volcanoes. Yeah. And, and then so it's like you both, you need to prove both uh, because you could either, like if you're trying to hack Pokemon Go, you could either hack it by saying the thing that I want to be near me is near me. Or you can say I am near the thing that I want to be. Yeah, there, there are one in the same of inverse announcers. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think the way to refer to it is like secure localization mm -hmm. and secure location verification. So localization is like I'm a device. Do I, can I reliably figure out where I am vis-a-vis mm -hmm. uh, -vis the network. Yeah. And usually that's what they rely on GPS for. Yeah. Uh, we want to have a system where they can rely on exclusively the rest of the network and not external things like GPS. So that's yeah. localization. is like, And a user um, wants the dynamic proof of location and this radio aspect we haven't gotten into yet. Yeah. They can localize themselves. There's no blockchain. There's no payment. You just pick up the signals and mm -hmm. figure out where you are. So mm -hmm. that's localization, and we want to make that a secure process. Yeah. Location verification is then, okay, I know where I am. Can I prove it to other people in a yeah. way that they can trust it? Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. So let's talk about, yeah, the actual, how this actually gets done. And I know it's with these zone anchors and these things to so kind of dive into, I am trying to prove that I am here in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. How would I prove that through foam? Yeah, so first, uh, the foam protocol would need to exist here. Yeah. And that, that's a different uh topic we can talk to you about after is how to incentivize people to actually set up coverage. Yep. But there needs to be coverage. And cool. Uh, location coverage would happen over uh, radio waves, so <laughs> specifically low power, wide area, like IoT radios. Mm -hmm. uh, but on a high level, uh, the system works the same as GPS in that you have um, at least four um, stations emitting highly accurate uh, time signatures mm -hmm. that are synchronized. And uh, if you can pick up at least four of those signals, you can run uh, location algorithms like trial iteration and figure out where you are relative to them. So with GPS, you need at least four overhead, one for X, Y, Z, and a fourth for a time variant. Yep. And that's how you can determine where you are. Cool. So our thing is the essentially the same, that you want to have what we call a zone with mm -hmm. at least four um, anchors. Yep. Uh, and if this zone is running themselves a time synchronization protocol, mm -hmm. so they are reliably in sync. Mm -hmm. So if you as a receiver can pick up at least four of their signals, mm -hmm. you can then localize yourself vis-a-vis um, -vis the zone. Uh, you could also maybe double back check it with GPS, so that's a way to know if the zone is even accurate or not. Yeah. Uh, and so that's just step one of, okay, you have a zone, it's running this time sync protocol. Uh, in our case, it's a Byzantine fault tolerant time sync protocol. Mm -hmm. And the zone is like just in sync. If it's in sync, you can determine your location, Got localize it. yourself, right? Yep. But the question is then how do we prove it to other people? Mm -hmm. So in this, how it differs from GPS is the zone is interactive. So mm -hmm. uh, customers can actually send messages back to it where with GPS you can. And so here, once the customer picks up the signals, they send him uh, like a response message with an associated fee, mm -hmm. could be in any token, yep. saying, please include me in your log. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course they would because there's money involved, mm -hmm. but maybe it's a bribe or a lie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But either way, the zone keeps a log of everything uh, they have. And in a consensus algorithm, which is 
we can talk about after almost like its own blockchain, but let's just say they keep this state machine, shared state machine, and they're always in sync, and people send in messages about their location, like keep me in their, uh, their log. Uh, for that log to ever be considered valid, a different entity uh, verifier checks all this data for fraud proof and eventually mm. posts it on some parent you know, root blockchain like Ethereum. And once you're going from instantly figuring out where you are to sending it to the zone, to then the zone's data is being checked, mm -hmm. and there's these steps of latency, mm -hmm. but once it's on this, it, it, uh, once your certificate or your message about where you are gets on that final chain and is checked for fraud proof, it's mm -hmm. considered final, mm -hmm. and then it's a first class blockchain object that other contracts or apps could reference, or you could present to other contracts. Got it. So yes, yeah, so there are the, you essentially need to have these four different anchors as part of a zone. At minimum. Yeah. Yep, at minimum, yep. And, um, and so I then connect to them through this Byzantine fault tolerant uh, time sync protocol. Uh, or Byzantine, uh, essentially, they're syncing on time. Um, <laughs> they're syncing and yeah. you can trust they're in sync. Yeah, exactly. Or you yeah. have means of checking if they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you disincentive, likely you disincentivize them not to be in sync or whatever. Um, so, uh, so as I'm there um, and I'm part of these four different, um, they say, here I am, then I eventually show to them that, hey, I'm here and that proves, uh, and they want to, um, essentially, they because money's involved, they want to put me on their log, mm -hmm. um, and then that log eventually gets put back to the main chain. Yeah. Um, so, and I guess that part of this is making sure that, that foam exists here. That's this kind of initial incentivization layer where you incentivize people to put a bunch of different anchors everywhere. And as far as I understand, they're incentivized through, because eventually they're going to, if there are lots of people wanting to use um, that zone, then those people who want to use that zone will pay them tokens. Yeah, the, re the revenue model. Okay, sweet. Yeah, so they say, ooh, this is a place that doesn't have very many anchors. A lot of people are going to need some more anchors here. I'm going to be an anchor. And then once I'm an anchor, then there's a bunch of Uber drivers here for some reason or whatever, and they are all going to pay me. To... Uh, definitely, yeah, but you skipped a step okay, in great. that uh, yeah. there's going to be zone anchors and there's going to be no customers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So the question is, how do we actually bootstrap this system and have coverage prior Okay. to the customers being there, mm -hmm. right? So if you imagine if we set up zones tomorrow, yep. there's not a fleet of smart contract Uber cars ready yes. to pay. Yes, 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 <laughs> and yes. so that's why we have uh, a block reward and mining rewards in um, foam uh, mm -hmm. as an incentive bootstrapping mechanism okay. of, uh, you know, can we set up these zones and run them? And mm -hmm. because we're just simply following the protocol and mm -hmm. broadcasting correctly, are, we are now eligible for new tokens. Okay. And so the only way to mine tokens is by setting up zones. Mm -hmm. um, and further, there's a component called signaling, mm -hmm. uh, where people can stake tokens uh, in a CSC on the spatial index. Mm -hmm. And the signal sh uh, shows a demand for location services oh. and the block reward is spatially weighted mm -hmm. so it's distributed where there's a higher signal okay uh so pre-launch uh people will signal where they're gonna set it up yeah. uh, and they'll be boosting their own rewards so they're going to be wanting to test it and help it set it up yeah. once uh this time sync proof of location is running uh people can signal where there are no zones mm -hmm. and even if there's no customers there if i set up a zone there i'm going to get a higher block reward than mm -hmm. if i stayed where everyone else is in new york interesting and so the signaling serves as a way to drive the coverage and mm -hmm. drive the supply so that the token distribution is not just over time with a half-life but it's actually mm -hmm. distributed to different locations based yeah. on the signal and the demand got it okay sweet so that's that's kind of how we address the like how are there ever be a zone here in the first place yep. and if there's no one who's going to be paying them as a customer maybe for a few years or more until this really matures 
uh, there is like a bootstrapping incentive mechanism. Cool. Okay. So, um, so we are trying to get these zone anchors set up essentially around here. And uh, in order to do so, um, what you do is you say, hey, if you place an anchor in the system, then uh, that's how you get some of the initial block rewards. Yeah. Um, and you can get more block rewards at the beginning if certain people, as you say, it's not just um, if you think about the blockchain in XY space, then you say, hey, I'm staking. I really want a bunch of, let's say I live somewhere that where I want people to set up anchors, then I, I personally would stake to that location. Mm -hmm. And then people would then come and say, oh, this will be, I will get higher block rewards as a result of people staking to this spot. Yeah. Is that correct? And people might signal even uh, going back a bit during the static proof of location yep. while we're just curating static points of interest. Yep. I might signal because I want to say I need secure location services here because mm -hmm. I want to make sure everyone voting actually went to the building and checked it out. Yeah. So um, people who are curating points of interest may also want to signal because for them it's a security upgrade because mm. now you know you can reduce civil attacks and actually guarantee the curators or even where they, in our case we call them cartographers, yeah. are actually in the area that they claim to be curating. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Um, so it's just like a general way to coordinate uh, people to build out the system themselves, like yeah. phone proof of location will have to be community driven, decentralized, and you know yeah. people contributing work in yeah. their own manner. So yeah. we need an incentive mechanism to help people build it out. If we just built it ourselves, we'd be recreating a centralized yeah. system. <laughs> oh god, yeah, no, and I think that the, in the, it's interesting the, the the incentives that you're placing. It's not just purely yeah, they're incentives. People the the people are incentivized to place um, these anchors from a. Block reward, essentially a what I think of as a, like a staked curation market block reward perspective, and from a later on once the customers are there, then they get rewards yeah. from being revenue. used to the revenue. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So that someone may be able to say, oh, "Okay, Times Square." It's the diff in our case difficulty it, uh, mining difficulty is number of peers nearby, yeah. and let's say okay, Times Square. Exactly. I'm not really getting a high block reward, but the revenue is great. Who yes. Cares? But another guy might say, "Oh, across the river in New Jersey." There's no customers there, but there's a, people are signaling, and if I just simply relocated, it would actually be more profitable for me. And that's the kind of ultimate uh, algorithm or function that we want, where there's always a means for people to want to actually expand the system. So yes. even if I was some sort of civil actor or could buy up 10% of the phone supply, uh, the most profitable thing I could do is not run all my zones in New York, but mm -hmm. put them in different places. And yeah. then I'm just helping spread the network. Got it. And when you say for someone to be in that location. So let's say I was in Times Square because I was one of the first people in Times Square and I was, I got some of the, there was a lot of staking stuff there. I got some of the initial, um, those block rewards and then some customers went there and I got a lot of the money that was being pushed to, but then a bunch of other people came and so the difficulty was too high. So I'm like, I'm going to New Jersey. How would I, do I need to actually move to New Jersey? <laughs> or like, uh, if you wanted to run a zone anchor there. Okay. And, and tell me why that's true. Yeah. Uh, why? How would I need to? Um, why does your system require me to be in the location where I set up a zone anchor? Uh, well, you don't as a human, but your zone anchor can't move. Uh, okay, so you can uh, also say, "Hey, I have made some revenue. I'm mm -hmm. going to keep this guy running in New York, and personally, I'll go set one up, another yeah. additional one somewhere yeah. else." Yep. And then when I let's say I go to New Jersey and set up the zone anchor, I'm there. I set up the new zone anchor, um, and the zone anchor, it's required to be in that. H how do we, how, how does the world know that that zone anchor is there, I guess? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, 
Well, one, if I wanted to go set up a new zone, I don't need to set up all four anchors myself, but yeah. there had to at least be three waiting for me. Okay. Uh, so there's one component. Uh, two, it, it, there's a like, confusion that many people have when we get into talking about this where they um, want to know how the system knows about absolute location. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first answer is it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Like The time sync protocol helps nodes determine their own geometry. It's abstract, uh, whether it's on Mars or uh, yep. on the Earth. It mm -hmm. just can tell you the distance between relative. the nodes. So mm -hmm. it's relative in that okay. case. So if I set up a zone uh, in New Jersey and I claim that I'm or I claim I'm in New Jersey and I actually set up a zone in Alaska, yep. let's say I'm running the protocol properly so it looks like I'm well-formed, mm -hmm. so I'm getting block rewards. Well, one, I don't get any customers because no one can find me mm -hmm. and they can't communicate with me because they have to be in proximity. And two, as soon as the rest of the zone anchors try to join my zone and no one can get in touch with me, mm -hmm. now I'm like uh, going to be slashed and I'm going okay. to lose my stake. Uh, so there's like a, a very little like reward from like setting up a zone in a fake location. Mm -hmm. um, and then further out of like people like using these zones or them being durable or over time, we probably see as like a second layer consensus TCR on absolute positions or mm -hmm. something like that. Got it. So if I am, I think this gets to this idea of this, the time sync protocol. Um, and, and so could you guys just explain that a little bit more deeply for me? Definitely. Yeah. How, and I guess from the point of view is if I pretend to be in Alaska and I'm not there, how would the others know that I'm not there and then slash my stake? Yeah. Uh, it's simultaneously very simple and complicated. <laughs> so in the sense that, um, you know, the questions about time synchronization and uh, location are like very intertwined. Mm -hmm. So questions about time and space, as we yeah. know. Uh, so how um, location in real-time systems is determined today, as like a, in a standard sense, is over radio waves uh, with synchronized clocks. Mm -hmm. So that's fundamentally GPS relies on atomic clocks mm -hmm. that with base stations coordinating them all together. Yeah. But there are plenty of other just wireless network systems that uh, rely on clock synchronization. And through uh, you know time of flight or the difference of time of flight of different nodes, if they have synchronized clocks, uh, you can then determine uh, distance. And mm -hmm. if you have enough nodes, you can point actually to where it is. Maybe with only three, you know it's 100 um, miles to the left or to the right, but with at least five, you could pinpoint where it is. So that's how time sync helps aiding uh, location. Got it. So we're doing the exact same thing where we have a time sync protocol. Yep. And because all the clocks are in sync from the uh, timestamps of the radio messages, mm -hmm. a receiver could determine their own location. Mm -hmm. uh, we want it to be Byzantine fault tolerant because there's no... Um, central place where they're synchronizing and they're, mm -hmm. which most systems have yeah. and uh, and by fault tolerant I mean it can survive and self-stabilize if it, up to one third of the nodes are faulty okay. or break mm -hmm. uh, and through this a fault tolerant time synchronization protocol any zone of nodes can determine its own geometry of mm -hmm. the network without an external input like GPS mm -hmm. so just by simply running this protocol the nodes in the protocol can determine where each other are mm -hmm. relative to each other yep Yep. Uh, and that's uh, all it can do. It can't t tell you if it's in London or if it's in New York. Yep. Um, but that's like what the time sync is providing. Got it. Got and it. through then, you know, this is a, then a synchronous protocol. Mm -hmm. uh, and all this kind of synchronous data is then stored in a state machine shared by the zone. Mm -hmm. And the shared state machine is then, uh, you know, a different kind of consensus of uh, basically partial synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And this is where uh, we imagine something like Tendermint consensus mm -hmm. comes in where over radio, you have this time sync protocol, mm -hmm. but the zone then has to actually store that and log that data mm -hmm. and vote on the shared state. And for that, they can use like Tendermint, which um, you know has instant finality 
never forks, so you don't have a zone state of forking. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm. And there, then they have this log building up over time. Cool. And that's also Byzantine fault tolerance, so uh, you have this like reliable radio uh, protocol, and through those signals, location can be determined, and then you have this log protocol that's also um, stable and fault tolerant. So now, as location customers get the data they need to learn their location, they send it into the zone, mm -hmm. and they ask, hey, can you put this in your basically Tenderman blockchain. Got it. Okay. So we're going to, and just to check, do you have, if possible, can, you, can we go to 23 more minutes, by the way? Uh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. Okay, sweet. Okay, nice, great. Um, so, so let's, because I think that this is, uh, so, yeah, essentially, usually people sync up on atomic clocks, um, but you guys won't be using atomic clocks, but you'll be using your um, your time sync protocol in order to make sure people are synced up. Uh, the zones could be using chip size atomic clocks. The oh. customers, like now, like the GPS are synced in atomic clocks, mm -hmm. but you as a receiver just Got it. Got it. So the anchors. Um, so if I make an anchor, do I need to be using an atomic clock? Uh, ultimately, because the protocol is radio, radio agnostic, mm -hmm. we imagine different zones would have different tiers of uh, precision. Interesting. Okay, interesting. And different tiers of like money spent on yeah. that because the yeah. protocol works up to one clock tick. Okay. So then the question is, well, how accurate is that tick? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. And like, okay. you know, millisecond versus nanosecond is like a massive difference. Yeah. And if uh, you have like, yeah, the more precise the clocks, the more accurate the whole protocol can be. Okay, got it. So each zone has to be homogenous with respect to the kind of sync that it's using. Some might be using atomic, some might uh, be using less than yeah, atomic. Yeah, I mean, like the full vision of you know what yeah. this could be in yeah. that, oh, this is so important that actually we need specific middle-of-the-ocean low satellite zones. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, everyone's still running the same message types, the same protocol. Yeah. It can be verifiers and then could be assigned all different zones, the data type, they're still checking it the same. It's just that yeah. one zone might be have higher accurate data, one might have lower because, yeah. and even if they all have the same clocks, because of one's in uh, South America and one's in North America, just like weather and time and how it affects crystals and like speed of atoms, mm -hmm. like when you get down to it, there's no, uh, no, no two zones will be the same. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> even yes, if yes. they have the same hardware. Yes, 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 that makes sense. Okay, cool. So I think I, I get that, which is, so at a high level, we have you're making the to just recap where we are now. There's the standards, the crypto, the CSC, the crypto spatial crypto spatial coordinates. Sorry, um, and then those allow you to. It's a standard for kind of like a latitude and longitude before the blockchain. Um, and then within that, you have this explorer that can explore based off of uh, that. Essentially, is a UX on top of that CSC standard. And then from that, we also have this proof of location thing where it's like we need to prove location or else people will hack it in the way that they've hacked stuff like Pokemon Go in the past, and especially as we get things where Pokemon Go, there was no real money at stake, just like various weird things of reputation. As more value gets placed into that, we'll need to prove our location better, and you guys have a, a system that uses 
nodes, sorry, anchors. Um, essentially, you're going to bootstrap the system um, through cool incentivization schemes like staking and what have you to bootstrap a network of all these anchors around the world, and they will have a, and you will, they will know where they are relative to each other because everybody will be synced through this time sync protocol. Uh, yeah. Moderately, okay, nice. <laughs> that was a, I got a, I got a moderately good um, uh, nod from Ryan, so I feel fine with that. Okay, so from that, um, let's talk, there's two final pieces I want to talk about today. One is this, the, the TCR side of things. Um, so let's start with that. So you talked about within proof of location, there's um, dynamic proof of location, which is going to be later, but static proof of location, and you're, you're saying that we're likely to use static proof of location with these TCRs at the beginning. Is yeah, that right? That's uh, what we'll that. be launching with, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, in that, it, it's a, this idea of can we take uh, CSCs, cryptospatial coordinates, combine them with token curated registries as a primitive, mm -hmm. uh, combine the standard with a primitive, I guess, and yeah. uh, come out with a new way to think about points of interest. Okay. And points of interest. Uh, Maybe not everyone would be familiar with what it means, but it just means like literally what are the interesting things on a map. Yeah. Uh, but it actually comes down to modern proof of interest data. You know, this is like up to a billion dollar marketplaces. And, uh, you know, Google has a large monopoly on those POI data. Uh, Foursquare, it's their number one business model is selling POI data mm -hmm. through their from their API. Um, and, you know, there's millions of uh, change sets a week to OpenStreetMap. So there are also just open, you know, contributors to POI data. Uh, but we see that there are no, uh, in the open way, like OpenStreetMap, there's no real um, incentive to keep adding more points, and there's definitely no verification. You know, it's very fun to add points. It's not as fun to police the map, <laughs> especially when there's no, uh, you know, winnings to get. Yes. Um, so we have this idea of, like, can we actually build a consensus-driven map of the world that actually has uh, incentives and is based on uh, a new form of cartography where people actually can curate and vote on uh, the data on the map. Got it. Okay, so in the way that this would work is with a TCR, aka a token curated registry, you would say for this um, this CSC, uh, for this area, um, would I claim, are the TCRs with respect to how, uh, is there one TCR for yeah. every what, you know? Yeah, so we're interested in, for, in the difference between objective and subjective mm -hmm. TCRs, uh, and one of the thinkings behind this uh, these lists is that if you don't have enough curators, it's really hard to maintain a quality list. Yeah. Uh, and so when you think about subjective spatial lists, and I know in TCR discourse, uh, even when previous podcast with Mike Golden, you know, people always use an example of like favorite sushi restaurants, yeah. or like favorite places, favorite locations. So yeah. it is kind of intuitive to think about locations, but those are all very subjective. And so uh, when it comes to objective data, we just want to know like, you know, are all these places actually where they claim to be? Yeah. And that's all. Uh, so we're launching with this one, you know, kind of master TCR based mm -hmm. on objective data. Okay. Um, you know, in this case, the list itself is the map. Mm -hmm. So you're not looking at a list. You're actually looking at a, a visualization of points. And mm. you can see a green point means it's on the list. A red point means it's currently challenged. A blue point mm. is an application. And that's how I actually... And a user can then, you know, favorite points, uh, tag them or interact with them. And it's also based on a ranking system. So Google ranks points based on how... Uh, popular they are so at certain zoom levels you actually see you yeah. know the most popular businesses or points so uh, based on how much stake is left in the point can like influence that and people could add points to it or withdraw in the future and that's this dynamic aspect okay. um, but the idea is then to build in tools so people to build their own custom TCRs out of this mm -hmm. and maybe they build more and more objective ones that are 
you know, just about cities, states, and towns. Uh, and then people start to build ones based on like favorite parks, favorite mm -hmm. restaurants and tools, and potentially those have their own tokens and their own ways to launch them and create them. Uh, that's definitely something that we see a lot of potential to explore, but uh, it's not the starting point. Yeah, yeah. So, and at the beginning, and this was a, this is a, um, Alex from Coin Fund um, had a good critical argument or good critical piece recently uh, against TCRs and how a there's only one live one today, which is the ad chain TCR, um, and b within TCRs there are um, you can think of them as a variant on an oracle, and uh, when you have oracles, oracles work in theory because um, objectivity is one of the big three things that they have. Uh, it's objectiveness, it's publicly observable, and it's very cheap to observe it. And it feels like what you, your, this point of interest data might check all three of those boxes. Uh, yeah, we definitely think so. And uh, there probably won't be that many challengers to begin with because people will care about curating this high quality list. But as we talked about earlier, as soon as a game like Pokemon comes in, that references the map data, mm -hmm. uh, people will maybe start to add bogus points uh, yep. and the curators would want to challenge it. Yep. And another aspect is uh, people who want to be really objective and help build out this consensus map of the world, something that's a point of truth. And, yep. you know, I'm here in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and this new uh, you know, organic deli just opened, and it's not on Google Maps. Mm -hmm. I was try trying to find out what hours it was open. I didn't even know who to call or yep. what they were called even. I just knew it opened recently. Yep. And so there's a latency of things getting added to the map, so people can start to build this single source of truth and create a consensus driven. But even if it is objective and hits these points that uh, match or don't match Alex's critique, rather. Uh, there's still you know, a lot of problems with TCRs. There is only one live one. We don't know how they work to the fullest extent. Uh, Sybil attacks are extremely trivial. Uh, so we see this also as an experiment and a way to show uh, why dynamic proof of location would be needed to help support mm. curating objective uh, information. Got it. And so within, just to make sure I understand this TCR, is, it, is there just one TCR for the whole map? Yeah, for, yep. for launch, and then Great. my yep. like mitosis or sub list can start to be born out of that, uh, okay. and Great. we're starting to experiment with, uh, you know, sister projects like relevant and new ways to make bonding curves of mm -hmm. how actually you have these trees of sub lists if they're all connected to the master one, yep. or how to actually introduce new tokens, and you know yep. that's an area still under exploration. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, cool. Um, so that makes sense that you have a. If I go and I look at this, the, your your variant on the block explorer, the XY block explorer, I don't want to see a bunch of random volcanoes in New York City when I'm looking at that, um, and that they put on there from Pokemon Go. And so we instead have a TCR, which uh, will hopefully be a good way for people to curate what is actually on that list. And as you say, you, the green things will be on it, and the red things will be off it. Um, and that will allow us at the initial time to say for static things whether they are or are not on this list. Um, so that makes sense. Um, let's do this final piece here, which is this. Um, I heard you talked about it recently in this one. You also chat about it in the a podcast with Epicenter recently. How these? It sounds like um, for a given uh, anchor set, essentially a given zone, uh, you have. You're conceptualizing of it in kind of this tenderment way of things, but also in the plasma child chain version of things. So can we kind of unbox that for a second? And for me personally, I haven't done much research into either, um, and so don't know much about either, but we might be able to understand all three of them, both your system and those two systems, based off of your explanation of them in respect to each other. Sure, Let's I'll give it a shot. It's definitely a more uh, generalized, so I can start with... Um 
the fact that so we've been speaking about zones and how people might want to be a validator in these zones. So the question is, how do they actually join, which you asked earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I explained how they join on the, in the physical way, like they have to set up a hardware and you know, turn it on and run the protocol. Yeah. But to actually be a valid uh, participant, they actually need to stake on uh, a parent chain or a root chain. Okay. And so this would be um, like Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, conceptually, it could be something like Definity or yeah. something else. So, uh, And that stake is what we call a service level agreement, like okay. an SLA. And so the zone is basically staking on this parent chain saying, hey, we're going to be running this zone for the next five months. Uh, we promise to have like 98% uptime. We're not going to be faulty. Uh, and we subject ourselves to being slashed yep. with this stake. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, the actual time synchronization is a synchronous protocol mm -hmm. like by nature. And the way that they logging this is a, what we imagine to be a Tendermint state machine. Okay. And so that's a partially synchronous protocol. Okay. And ultimately, the security would be derived then on this, these stakes that I referred to, which is uh, on an asynchronous protocol, mm -hmm. meaning like uh, Ethereum proof of work or eventually um, proof of stake. Mm -hmm. um, and so Foam proof of location as a whole relies on this synchronous, partially synchronous, and asynchronous consensus. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not exactly sure if it would be a plasma construction or a tender a cosmos IBC construction interchain, but the idea is you have stake occurring on some master chain mm -hmm. as a way to enter, to yep. become a validator in this subchain, mm -hmm. and that subchain is the zone. Yep. And then you're keeping that consensus log and then also broadcasting over radio. Okay. And so this kind of like three stages where if I want to be, uh, be a zone, I first stake on the master chain, mm -hmm. it allows me then to send out the correct messages I need. And yep. then once my zone's up and running, uh, this validator, verifier rather, mm -hmm. uh, checks the zone's data and for fraud proof and goes back to the parent chain as well and mm -hmm. says, hey, don't slash them, actually mm -hmm. give them mining rewards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. So, yeah, so essentially you have the zones and the zones are, um, essentially make a stake to the root chain, mm -hmm. any kind of smart contract platform, let's say Ethereum, and you say, hey, um, I'm, I'm going to be an awesome person, I'm going to make this zone here, and it's going to be up for these various times, and I'm going to have a good consensus or whatever. When I do that, um, that's happening, and then these verifiers go and they check, they can say, oh man, no, you're totally wrong, you know, yeah. um, and, and then they can slash you, or they can say, actually, you're right, therefore give this person block rewards. Yeah. Um, and then one step further, the actual users or location customers, mm -hmm. uh, they pay to get their data in the zone. So the verifiers can say, hey, the zone is well-formed, but they have all this junk data in there. Don't, mm -hmm. don't put that on the root chain. Okay, got it. And so, and tell me, and dive a little bit deeper on what you mean by, you talked about a fully synchronous protocol, a semi, an a, or a, a kind of synchronous protocol being Tendermint, and then an asynchronous protocol. Um, how would you relate those three things? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely not the um, best expert in consensus algorithms. Uh -huh. I rely on uh, some of my consultants, but really there's this uh, thing called the CAP theorem, uh -huh. which is like trade-offs between consistency, Great. availability, uh, and partition tolerance. Uh -huh. And so the main differentiation, uh, the trade-offs is like uh, that Tendermint and Casper, at least the friendly yeah. finality gadget, mm -hmm. they make different trade-offs in mm -hmm. this CAP theorem against uh, consistency and availability. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, in the partially synchronous one, what that means is the, the voting aspect happens in a different kind of uh, order, but okay. at least the messages are always sent in order, so okay. that's why it's partially synchronous. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Tendermint trade-off is in uh, availability, so it'll never fork. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that means it might be off. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so why, and it has instant finality or within like three seconds. But so why is that good for a zone? Well, that means the zone uh, blockchain is really fast. Mm -hmm. uh, it finalizes its data logs really quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it passes this one third, you know, Byz Byzantine fault, threshold, yep. the zone just turns off. Mm -hmm. So you don't have now a zone forking and producing two types of presence mm -hmm. claims everywhere. Okay. So that's why we were interested in Tendermint mm -hmm. uh, for that. And it, it would work really well uh, as an IoT stack mm -hmm. and uh, not very tested. So obviously we were looking to work closely with the Tendermint team on yeah. you know building this out. Uh, what do we mean by then asynchronous protocol like uh, a Nakamoto consensus mm -hmm. in that uh, you know Bitcoin is running on the internet which is not in sync and yeah. there is no shared clocks. Uh -huh. Bitcoin itself has a, a timestamp way to keep track of some sort of consensus on time, but yeah. otherwise you know blocks are being added or not asynchronously and it does fork like Ethereum could. Um, so you could be mining on the wrong chain for some time and then realize that oh, whoops and then sync back in. So that's all asynchronous and eventually. Um, you know, even if there's forks, it eventually all figures out which is the right chain to be on. Got it. Um, and so that's like the difference, I think. Cool. Yeah. So, so you have the semi-synchronous protocol, um, which is just basically keeping the log of the sync one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. 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 Um, oh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So the sync one is going over and radio. Then, yeah. Exactly. Each node, from their point of view, well, they're getting messages in order every the same order every time because the nodes the anchors don't move so yep. it's just they're synchronously logging the data they get they're I mean, synchronously logging it data. shouldn't change because after the first time because they don't move yeah and then and then, then the semi-synchronous one logs them all and you want that to be fast so you use a tenderment style as you talk about this cap theorem where you mm -hmm. just say hey um things are going to go fast um and uh, as you said if there's an attack or something like that it just goes down instead of forking but that that's in this trade-off space this um and so you allow the speed there which is great and then finally you eventually um go back to the asynchronous protocol and and, and then uh uh, validate things on the, the or root chain or whatever. The, like Merkle post, root yeah. of like, yeah. and so that's just like a header of like, hey, yeah. my present claim I bought last year it still exists on block, yeah. you know, eight thousand on the main Ethereum chain. It's immutable. Doesn't matter that the zones service level agreements over and yeah. they trash the data. Yeah, I, my location's been proven and it's on this asynchronous immutable block. Yes, great. Cool. Um, well, that was mostly, I got most of that, so I think that, that was okay. Um, well, Ryan, it's, the other note here is just, and I don't, we're not going to go into much of these, but there's the other things that they're doing, which are cool, are A, they're, they have a functional programming stack. Um, and uh, as some of my listeners know, I'm into functional programming. It gives you a new mental model through which to view the world. And I think it's very powerful. So that's interesting. So if you're interested in functional programming plus blockchain crypto stuff, um, definitely yeah. check And we out. have a, a number of libraries as well as a developer portal, developer.foam.space, uh, that has more of the Foam-specific uh, tools. But our GitHub has uh, you know, general purpose functional programming Ethereum libraries as well. Yeah, so that's sweet. The other sweet thing that we didn't talk about was uh, they're working with Token Foundry, which is out of consensus. And with them, they're working on a bunch, and they, we talked about it a bit, but like these ways through which we can do these new kinds of token sales where we don't actually just like give all the tokens to whoever, but rather you say, hey, you need to prove that you want to be a part of our network and be, uh, so, so yeah, it, they're, they're doing cool new token sale design um, by making participants actually participate in order to get part of it. Is that Yeah, right? our, our sales structure has a proof of use function and uh, we're not looking to distribute to speculators, but really need to have uh, distribution to people to help build this uh, protocol out and are not doing so 
to expect necessarily profit, but to help contribute work. Uh, so we've partnered with the Brooklyn Project as well, which is an initiative by Consensus, as well as Token Foundry, a new token sale platform on uh, basically consumer compliant uh, tokens uh, that'll be going you know, straight to mainnet and really have this proof of use functionality where if you want to participate and secure an allocation, you have to basically show uh, that you're going to help build out this decentralized network. Yeah, that's sweet. Um, so those are also cool things. And just as a reminder, we talked about the other stuff from above, um, mainly the the crypto the standards, the crypto spatial coordinates, the um, the UX on top of those, and then the proof of location and the variance on within that. TCRs for static, um, others for dynamic, which we didn't go too much into. And then finally, we talked a little bit about, and, and Brian helped me more understand how their system is similar to uh, a Tenderman style semi-synchronous um, uh, consensus protocol. Um, yeah. So with that, Ryan, thank you again so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much, Reese. And if anyone wants to reach out uh, to the Foam Space Twitter or uh, our website's foam.space or join our Telegram, we're happy to answer any questions or see you join the community. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and with that, thank you everybody for listening. And if you want to, so definitely, honestly, check them out. Foam.space um, is uh, the website address. And if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash that's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. And you can also go to staketree.com slash as well. Okay, thank you, everybody, and goodbye.